Fans of the Dynasty Invest podcast, if you feel like there was one particular episode in the back catalogue in the anthology of Dynasty Invest podcast episodes that really, really, really was massively valuable to you, feel free to share that with a fellow dental colleague who's in a similar position so their understanding of finance can be elevated and they can hit the next level of financial success in their life. Also, as well as that, if you could take two seconds to rate and review this podcast, it would mean the world to me. What that would mean is that it drives this podcast further in terms of reach so that more dentists across the world can be able to benefit from the knowledge contained therein. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Dentists Who Invest podcast. This vlog is made for information purposes only. The views expressed in it are those of the speakers. The contents do not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. The speakers accept no responsibility for the continuing accuracy of the contents. Welcome everyone to another episode of Dentist Who Invest official podcast, episode number 30 we're on now. This is an episode that I've wanted to do for quite a long time. It's something that I feel is relevant to all of us and we don't necessarily get any formal training on. I want to talk about note writing, contemporaneous note writing, how we can do it better and I know for a fact I can't be doing this to the best standard that I can be because all, all I've got, all, all the information I've got at my end is hearsay and secondhand accounts from other people about what we should put in our notes. And maybe I've never really had any formal training on that. And this is why I wanted to create this episode because I can't be the only one who feels that way, that maybe I'm just putting stuff in there that... I would guess or expect is important, but I don't actually know any better. And this is why I've reached out to Louisa Sherlock, who is a lawyer and also formerly a dentist. So if there's anybody who's uniquely placed to be able to give us a good answer on that question, Louisa is. Louisa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. My absolute pleasure, Louisa. I feel like I'm going to learn a lot this episode, and I think this is going to be very useful to everybody who's listening, because like I say, no formal training. And Louisa and I were talking a little bit off camera, and we were trying to decide what we should put in this episode, and there really is so many facets to this. I think we could easily get about three or four episodes out of this, about different aspects of the litigation progress, etc., etc. So we're going to keep this episode really focused today on what we should be putting in our notes. Maybe a little bit about what to expect if that, if we ever run afoul of that system, and for whatever reason we are placed in that position where we have to go through uh, litigation. Fingers crossed, none of us ever do, but it does happen. Maybe we will touch upon that very briefly. But as I say, very focused on record keeping and notes today. Louisa, for anybody who doesn't know you, would you like to do a brief introduction, maybe speak a little bit about your history in dentistry and also what made you take the leap into being a lawyer and a little bit about your practice, whatever you like really. Um, Yeah, well I was a dental surgeon for over a decade, both in NHS and private practice. I'm now a barrister at number five chambers and also a qualified mediator. As a dentist, I helped to run a a very busy NHS practice, um, helping staff to prepare for CQC inspections and so on. Um, I was also a member of my local dental committee, uh, assisting dentists then who were having difficulties. Um, As a barrister, I now practice in clinical negligence, uh, representing both claimant and defendants. Uh, I work in personal injury uh, and also commercial and contractual disputes, particularly those involving medical professionals and dentists. Uh, 
as an I'm also a mediator and that means that um, I can go in and act as a neutral third party helping parties to resolve disputes before they get to court to answer your question about what made me leave dentistry well, I've always been interested in law. Um, I did a careers test in sixth form, actually, and the result came out that I should be a barrister. Uh, but I was studying sciences. I'd always enjoyed sciences and decided to pursue the route of becoming a dentist because I wanted to care for others. Uh, I did enjoy my career as a dentist. I did further training with the Royal College of Surgeons and an aesthetic training course. And I developed a private practice focusing on aesthetic dentistry and invisible orthodontics, as well as some facial aesthetics. However, I've always really enjoyed academic work, um, reading, researching and so on. Uh, So I spent some time with solicitors and barristers observing what they do. And then I decided I definitely wanted to become a barrister. So I commenced the GDL, which is a law conversion course. And it's a three year law degree converted into one. Um, It's very intense. I did it full time, but I still worked part time in a private practice doing some uh, spending some hours treating patients and also doing some on calls and emergencies. When I was doing the GDL, I became involved with mooting, which is a sort of advocacy training where you run mock trials um, and, and you're in court as if it's a real trial. You have competitions. I, just, I really enjoyed that. Won a couple of competitions and decided um, I was even more certain that I wanted to become a barrister. And so I commenced the bar training course, qualified as a barrister. I was called to the bar in 2018 and here I am three years into my career as a barrister. Awesome. Wow. And we were saying as well off camera, there can't be too many dentists uh, come lawyers, people who have done sort of both, really. I mean, you must be, there can't be very many of you because it is quite, I've I've had friends who have went through that one year law conversion course and it was just basically, I didn't see them for a whole year because they just had so much work to do. And you've managed to do that and do a job around it. It's a lot to take on and that must be a massive barrier. Um, yeah, yes, it's an awful lot to take on. I think you have to be really certain that that it is what you want to do. Um, it is very intense, but as I say, I really enjoy reading, researching, all of that sort of thing. So for me, you know, it's a great challenge, and I worth love it. my work as a barrister. Yeah, worth I mean, it. yeah, awesome. Well, that's the main thing. It. As long as you can say that, wonderful, wonderful, cool. And you basically, the main reason that you wanted to get into it was you did you ever fall out of love with dentistry, or was it less that? Was it maybe you feel like you were more suited, your skills were more useful in a law setting or what was what was that moment that made you say, actually, I'm going to do this, I'm going to take the plunge? I think it was kind of a really gradual process, just having always been interested in law, doing work for the local dental committee, spending time with solicitors and barristers. Um, and I just kind of gradually sort of shifted my views to thinking, I feel like this is what I want to do. And I, I don't think it was necessarily falling out of love with dentistry so much is just thinking that I feel like I should be going in this direction, um, becoming a barrister and being able to help dentists in that respect. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So as we know, this page is mainly about investing, but to to save money to invest, you need to have it in the first place and you need to make sure your notes are in order and you're as litigation proof as possible. Let's cut straight to the chase, Louisa. Dentists live in fear of being sued. And it's maybe something, I don't know if it's like a hysteria to a degree, because perpetually it's something that's in the back of a lot of our minds. And I wanted to know how much we should actually be conscious of this and how much we should be worrying about it. How frequent is it in your experience? 
Um, I suppose, I mean, you see cases all the time, um, new cases coming through, so so it is very frequent. Um, as to whether you should worry about being sued, well, I would say, you know, clearly it's not a position that anyone wants to be in. Um, but at the same time, I would say it's important not to worry too much about it, um, because I remember the fear that I felt you know, just leaving dental school and in the early years about being sued. And I remember speaking with friends who said they would go home every night and think about what they'd done that day and what they might be sued for. I just think that's an awful way um, to live your professional life. You know, just because if someone is sued, it doesn't mean you're a bad dentist, we're all humans. We all make mistakes. I've heard it said that a dentist makes on average two to three errors every day. Um, and I've been told that on average uh, pilots make on average 30 mistakes a day. Um, but, you know, thankfully, most of those errors don't result in serious problems. But, you know, some of them unfortunately do. But I'd say that as long as you're doing your best with your work, you know, following recent guidelines, keeping up to date with everything, it shouldn't be something that you're worrying about too much. Um, I know people do become very preoccupied with it. That's just, it's not, it's not healthy. It's one of those things where if something goes wrong, you know, the, the patient needs to be compensated. And it's as simple as that. It shouldn't be something that's taken too personally. Of course, there are some spurious claims that are brought. Um, but usually the ones that proceed, uh, you know, something has just, gone wrong and, and say it's something like a tooth has been taken out incorrectly well the patient suffered that loss so if it's the wrong tooth has been taken out um but it's not their fault that they've lost the tooth and essentially they just need to receive the money um, to replace that tooth and maintain it going forward and it's something that your insurers uh, generally would deal with and as long as you're doing the best as a dentist for your patient then that will really come across I've done work for the Dental Defence Union and I've, I've been in conferences with dentists and the lawyers aren't judging the dentist professionally. They're just sort of trying to work out what has happened, what's gone wrong, what is the dentist's position and how's the best way to put your case. So you shouldn't sort of worry too much about coming up in front of the lawyers. They're not going to sort of you know, tell you off or anything. They're just kind of going to try and talk through with you how, how best to, to manage this. And I know that some people as well end up sort of practicing what's called defensive dentistry, where they're just worried about being sued and don't want to go on training courses and try out new things. And again, it's such a, you know, it's not, not the best way to be living your professional life and uh, reaching your full potential. I think it's really important to always have it in mind that there's always this risk, but, you know, follow the guidelines, um, do your best with every patient, recording everything in your notes as best as you can. Uh, but I just think it's important not to spend your professional life being scared of being sued. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I think the thing that gets me about dentistry sometimes is that how often in your experience, maybe you might set me straight on this one, but for me, it's kind of like you can do everything that you can. Everything can look you know, really good as far as you're concerned. And maybe the patient yeah. will just get upset about some something that isn't really in it. Like, say you, let's just, let's give a tangible example. Say you take a tooth out and you say afterwards, okay, there's a risk of infection. There's a risk of a dry socket. Yeah. Patient comes back with a dry socket. They have it in your head. 
in their head that it's your fault somehow. So let's say, for example, you've documented that there's going to be an infection. There's possibility yeah. of a dry socket, something like that. So that's, yes. a, that's a fairly standard thing to write in a note. Okay. So yeah. you've, you, as far as you're concerned, you've put it in the notes. Have you necessarily fully explained all the ins and outs of every single possible ramification of what a dry socket might be? No, because it's very difficult to do that in a however long appointment, 15, 20 minutes. And then you've written, as far as you're concerned, you put it in the notes. The patient comes back with a dry socket, like I say. And then, yeah. even, you know, they, they, you reassure them that it's fine. And then they kick up a fuss. And then afterwards, it goes to court, whatever, a lawyer looks at it and they say, well, technically you haven't explained that this dry socket could be painful or I don't know that there could be swelling or how long this might last. Or there's this, say you've spelt the word dry, you've missed, you've, you've put R before D or something like that, you know, <laughs> literally something tiny. That's okay. what I mean. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. Th- what I mean is, is that, is it commonplace that that would be an issue? That's, there's, there's the best I see. Example of a technicality that I can give you. It's just a minor spell a mistake or something like that. I see what you mean, yeah. Um, so, I mean, a lawyer's not going to pick you up on a spelling mistake. A judge isn't going to think anything bad about that, especially because, you know, they understand that dentists are very busy professionals. That's not something that's going to cause you a problem. Um, if, if you're taking a teeth, tooth out, ideally, you know, you explain the risks. So, um, for example, pain, um, swelling, bruising, bleeding. Um, they are all natural risks, inherent risks of, of an extraction. And um, if one of those arises, it would be really difficult to say that it's because, well, first of all, if you're going to prove that a dentist has, um, if the claim is going to have a successful dental negligence claim, they need to prove that the dentist breached their duty of care and in, in that, it's that um, their care fell below the standard of what would be expected of a reasonably competent dentist. And that that breach caused the loss that the patient suffered. So if, for example, it's um, taking a tooth out and you, you've explained the risks and the patient comes back, well, you know, unless there's an expert for the, for the claimant saying, well, it's because of what the dentist did, which would be quite difficult to, to, to prove, I would say then um, it, the, the general view would be, well, this is an inherent risk. It's explained to the patient. They understood it. Um, it. It's difficult to prove what did the dentist do that fell below the standards of reasonable care, as long as they you know, yeah. took all of the tooth out completely. It was fully extracted, um, hemostasis attained and all of that. Um, and then if they have fallen below the standard in, in any of those, did that cause the loss? Um, so, you know, consent is one thing so that was my next question so i get i get that it's maybe not a negligence thing but it could be a a consent thing there you go and then there's another reason why it could be a technicality so it's anyway sorry to jump in but oh yeah um because i think that is and there's been a case um i don't know if you know about it but montgomery is quite a recent case on informed consent and it says that all medical professionals have to explain all the risks of procedures in order to gain fully informed consent. So really, you know, ideally you should um, explain the risks to your patient and then um, document it. Uh, something to say that the patient understands, patient's willing to go ahead with the treatment. If you've got all of that, you, you sort of, you know, you covered really. 
uh, as long as you know that the patients understood the risks. Um, if you haven't um, documented a risk, for example, but you know that you have explained it or that you always do, you know, you can put that across and say that that's what I always do. But it's just if it's not in your notes, it's not going to be as firm an argument. So if it's written down, it's going to always be better for you. Um, otherwise, you can say, well, this is what I always do. I would have done that. But then um, there will be some cases where um, people will say, well, if I've been informed of this particular risk, I wouldn't have had the procedure. Um, and those cases um, can succeed. But if, if it's someone with, uh, say, a, a really infected wisdom tooth, lots of pain, swelling, you know, if you leave it, what are the risks? Well, the potential, you know, septicemia and so on and extensive swelling, ongoing pain. What, what a judge would be looking at as well, okay, it's not in your notes that there's a risk of dry socket. Had the risk of dry socket been explained to the patient, would they still have gone ahead with the extraction? On balance, probably yes, given that dry socket is a relatively minor problem compared to what could happen if you left an infected tooth in there. So, you know, on balance, even if the patient says, well, I wouldn't have had it extracted if I'd known of the risk of dry socket, you know, judge will look at, is that reasonable? Well, you know, on balance, you probably would still have had it anyway. Um, so the failure of the dentist to inform the patient of the dry socket didn't cause it, if you see what I mean. So you kind of then may have the point where it's, you can succeed on the causation argument that that wasn't what caused caused the loss because they would, even if you had explained it to them, they would have gone ahead with the treatment anyway. So it's not sort of the, the fact that just because something isn't in your notes or you haven't written it down and you're sort of worrying about that, it doesn't mean necessarily you're automatically going to be seeing it. it's all going to go wrong. Um, there's quite a few stages to, to go through for that to happen. Yeah, Inter- no, that, well, that's, that's interesting in itself because I would have thought or presumed afterwards that even though they definitely would have had that tooth out, there was a massive abscess, all the rest, that if they got a dry socket afterwards and they, for whatever reason, were dissatisfied with that, that they probably still, my understanding would have been that they probably still could have caught you out there. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But that's reassuring because it means that there is a little bit of balance in there or there's something that goes in our favour, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's always important to, you know, to get informed consent for everything, to document everything as much as you can, mm-hmm. um, you know, but but don't sort of worry unnecessarily at the same time. Yeah. Cool. And um, obviously, you could, have, you could have a patient complaining. They might not be very happy about it. And you might be wanting, you know, that might be a different matter. You might think, well we'll talk about it and explain it and try and resolve it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have a successful dental negligence claim against you, for example. Cool. Interesting stuff. And I wanted to know as well, how much in your experience does good record keeping actually make a difference? Because we've heard stories where the indemnities, they quite often find it cheaper to pay out than go through the litigation process or to actually take this to court. So I know that you're always going to say that it's worthwhile to keep good records, but how useful are they and how frequent is what I've just described? Real quick, guys, I've put together a special report for dentists entitled The Seven Costly and Potentially Disastrous Mistakes that dentists make whenever it comes to their finances. Most of the time, dentists are going through these issues and they don't even necessarily realize that they're happening 
until they have their eyes opened. And that is the purpose of this report. You can go ahead and receive your free report by heading on over to www.denisoninvest.com forward slash podcast report. Or alternatively, you can download it using the link in the description. This report details these seven most common issues. However, most importantly, it also shows you how to fix them. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. So, so I think there were two points there, um, whether record keeping um, makes a difference and whether, as you say, it indemnified fires just find it cheaper to pay out. So on the first point, yes, good record keeping does make a difference. That's the first thing. And the main thing that the lawyers representing you would be looking at in a, if a claim was to be brought against you. Uh, it's documentary evidence, contemporaneous notes of what happened at the time. And not only does good record keeping help you to defend a claim, but it also paints a picture. So um, detailed record keeping suggests a careful, conscientious dentist, and that will come across at trial and, and, and that will work in your favour. If you've got brief haphazard notes suggesting the clinician that isn't all that bothered, it could go against you. And it, it may not be the case that it's not, you're not, not bothered, um, but you're just really busy and, you know, just doing the best that you can. But just be aware that if that is the documentary evidence that's going to be, go before the lawyers and before the judge. So, um, it's not a... so sorry to jump in. It's maybe slightly an ethereal thing then in, in that it's just you being able to prove that you're conscientious and that will swing the balance in your favour rather than it being black and white. You should have this. You shouldn't have this. Is that Have I grasped that correctly? Yeah, so I think... Um, Two things really, that when you're looking at the particular incident in question, the lawyers and judge will be looking at your dental records around that particular matter uh, in trying to decide and determine what happened and what went wrong if something did go wrong, what you did right, what you did wrong. Um, but also it will paint a general picture right. okay. and a, just a, a, of a conscientious dentist. Um, poor record keeping in itself as well um, can be considered a breach of duty. So, you know, if the lawyers look at it and think, well, these records fall below the standard of a, a reasonably competent dentist, that could be an additional breach of duty of your care. So it's something else that the claimant's lawyers will be looking at when they're deciding, you know, how to sue you. Um, consent is a big thing, such a big thing, as I've talked about. Um, and you can be sued for failing to obtain informed consent. So, so again, when getting gaining consent it's really important to make a record of all the discussions around obtaining consent that you've done it that you've explained the diagnosis the treatment options the risk of those options the costs and what was said what the what treatment the patient decided on and why and it, and also it, it's just good practice to, to keep good records because when you're treating that patient you can look through and see what was done and, and probably instantly remember if it's more detailed it's going to bring back a better memory for you if another dentist treats your patient then they're going to know what's happened as well and be able to treat that patient um, to the best of their ability awesome um, yeah i mean about the, the point about indemnifies finding it cheaper to just pay out um in my experience well the indemnifier, if they, if they receive a claim from a from a patient, then they will uh, instruct the lawyers, so solicitors and barristers, to look at the claim and also the dentist records. They will probably instruct an expert to look at the records as well um, and consider how well placed they are to defend the claim. Um, they will. The barrister typically will draft a, a robust defence, defending 
defending allegations and um, admitting any allegations that the dentist wants to admit. Um, the dentist is a part of that as well. And so the dentist is brought into the conference with um, a member of the defence organisation's list of barrister. I'll talk through the case. The dentist will be invited to say what they admit, what they deny, what they put their claim to proof on and why. Um, and obviously that's going to depend largely on what, what you have in your records, because if you're saying something happened but it's not recorded you can still put it in the defense if you're certain that happened but it's just it's going to be your oral evidence rather than the documentary evidence supporting your case um and then once the defense is drafted and that is with the assistance of the the dentist because the dentist signs it at the end of it to say that they agree with that um then both parties will try to reach settlement and that's in order to having to in order to avoid having to pay the very hefty litigation fees. Um, but it's not the case that they just will pay whatever the claimant wants. So what is paid will um, depend on firstly whether the claimant has a case at all, because it might be that they don't and everything's denied. Um, uh, or at least the, the indemnifiers consider that to be the case. Uh, if they do think that the claimant has a case, then how strong the case that is will defend, depend upon you know, how strong the dentist's defence is. And that's really based on what the dentist says and what's in their records. And then the parties will try to reach some sort of agreement that everyone's happy with. Um, but but so, so a lot goes on before it even gets to litigation. So all of that goes on behind the scenes and then the parties try to settle it. And only in certain circumstances will it go to court if both parties are just so far apart. But it costs an awful lot to run these trials at court. You've got to get experts in. It runs for several days. Um, and that's why, if possible, the parties will try to settle it. But it's not just a sort of, oh, they just pay out. You know, it's not like that. It, it, a lot of thought goes into it. I see. Interesting. Maybe we can make another podcast out of this, but consent specifically. In your opinion, yeah. is it possible to gain informed consent? Because I've heard people who are lawyers say that it's very difficult to actually do that, close to impossible. Because by the time you've given somebody all the information that they need to make a decision, you have to bear in mind there's extra things that you might tack on top based on their unique medical history. And there's a lot of information to get across to that specific individual. What's your opinion on that? It's going to be very difficult because you're going to have to think about so much um, and talk about a lot. And then, you know, it may well be that you talk through the medical history, the treatment options in full, but then actually, you know, documenting it all as well is going to take time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I fully appreciate that. So you know, you just have to do the best that you can. Okay. Really, I think that. And I think if you, you know what, that's the best. That's the most actionable, practicable thing that you can say because it's so impossible to get all of. It's what yeah. you say. It's what you say. It's what you have to. It's all you have to tailor that to make it unique to that person, which you should be doing yeah. every time. All right. There might be things that are totally unforeseen. You know weird medical conditions you've never heard of, one in a million, things like that. And then it's also structuring it so that information, the information is tangible to that patient or they're able to give it back to you. Going back to my uni days, informed consent, it's a decision. Uh, there's, there's three parts to it. So they have to be able to understand, retain, weigh up and communicate information and give it back to you. There's four parts actually, sorry. Is, that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's my, um, from memory, but you'll know better than me. Yeah, yes, that's right. And just kind of um, making sure that you explain all the risks as well. 
um, explaining the treatment options, going through it all, making sure that they fully understand it, as you say, that they can communicate it back to you. Um, and when you talk about what treatment option they've decided upon, you know, talking to them about it, maybe asking them a couple of questions, why have you decided on that, just to make sure that they fully understood it and, if possible, documenting it as much as you can. Awesome. What are the common, most common things that you see dentists get caught out on? Um, I mean, obviously, every case is unique. Um, but I would say that a really um, big thing, important thing, is um, changing notes. So, you know, you've got a contemporaneous record of what happened. If the dentist then goes in and changes that, oh. you know, following the receipt of a claim, then that can be tracked. So through the computer or um, if you look at paper records, sometimes they have um, codes along the bottom or dates and you can tell that something's out of sequence. Surely everyone knows that about computers. They, cha- they, they, they You can see the date change in front of you. I mean, when I, I've had to go, sometimes you write notes and then you come back the next, you, you go home and you think, oh, I should have put that in. Yeah. And then you come back and you write them the next day, which is fine, by the way. You can do that if something else pops into your head. But after the after a claim comes in, that's a completely different kettle of fish. You know what I mean? But I'm surprised to hear that people still do that or that's still a thing. Yeah, it can happen. And I think people just sometimes panic. Um, yeah. But clearly enough. that's yeah, a really a, a really big no-no because, um, you know, it's accepted people make mistakes and so on. But if dishonesty comes into it, that's kind of when you could end up in front of the GDC because it's just questionable as to whether or not you can be trusted. I see. I see. Um, with patients. So... So that um, another thing is um, using templates, for example, quick notes. So if you have a dentist where at every appointment, if something's gone wrong, it could be, for example, a periodontal case and it's not been properly diagnosed or not been properly treated. And at every appointment, you just have this um, quick note saying, you know, oral hygiene advice given, um, smoking cessation advice given, scale and polish, you know, it's repeated every time. It's going to be really difficult to rely upon that um, and say, well, I did give proper advice and I did um, give proper treatment because it would appear to a lawyer and a judge that, well, perhaps you're just copying and pasting without any specifics. Uh, how do we know that you have actually done this and not just copied and pasted a note? So um, I can understand why templates quick notes are used because it helps to save time but it's important to try and then tailor it so once you have that quick note edit it slightly to tailor it to what actually happened in that in that appointment yeah thank you for that no it's okay um um, and just to make it really clear that you know you haven't just copied and pasted and not thought about it um, another thing is just notes that aren't really detailed enough. Uh, I know it's it's not so um, it's not so frequent now, but you, going back, you see sort of just exam, scale and polish. That's that's what you would see. Um, they, they gradually become more detailed, but just not quite enough um, as to everything that happened. And for example, you know things like um, all the, the carers was removed, dentine was sound. Um, lining was placed all of those sort of things if if for example the patient comes back and has problems with the filling that's something that you know we'll be looking at not covering consent properly which we've talked about and really um periodontal disease is quite a big one so um you get a lot of periodontal cases undiagnosed um perio peri- uh, periodontal disease that hasn't been properly treated so 
in that um, really fully recording BPEs, recording the diagnosis, doing further charting if necessary, recording treatment options, treatment that was done, um, whether oral hygiene advice was given and kind of specifically what that was. So whether it's using interdental brushes or floss or mouthwash, if smoking cessation advice was given, those sorts of things. So just really um, not having enough detail on those points. Um, kind of then portrays a picture if, if it's over a period of time portrays a picture of a dentist that hasn't really properly managed the situation and has therefore contributed to the patient's progression of disease yeah fair enough fair enough and I know that this might be a hard one for you to answer but going back to when you were talking about detail again this is something that I've never really had any formal explanation of but let's say let's use let's use a filling for example. Now the reason why this might be hard to answer is it's going to be different for every procedure, of course. But let's use a filling for an example. Now my quick note for a filling it says clean decay, decay at, all decay at margins clean, and then it says um, you know soft or it says firm dentine left in the middle. You know as you should do. You know at least that's how I do it anyway. I don't remove all the decay. It just needs to be clean at the margins, and then I'll say something like etched margins with phosphoric acid, etched enamel with phosphoric acid, and then I'll say generation seven bond used, massaged into the center of the tooth, built up with flowable, whatever, composite on top. Okay, now that's just, that's my quick note, all right? Now, that is what I put in, I went in, maybe I put a little bit more detail in there than a lot would, I don't know. Is that too much detail? Is there a right level of detail? Obviously, you could spend all day putting every single thing that you did in there. What's the right amount? Again, I feel I know I know that might be a little difficult to answer, but maybe if you could just give us some general pointers. Yes, that sounds like um, a good level of detail. I would say, you know, very detailed. Um, I think again, if you're using that sort of typically for each patient or each filling that you do just sort of editing it slightly as in you might have some cases where um, it's you need to use the slow speed hand piece for example to remove because you think it's getting close to the pulp so just kind of tailoring it to to that particular tooth or that particular treatment um, any particular difficulties that arose just tailoring it again to that particular treatment so that it's clear that you, you have um, done everything that's in your nose and you have really thought about it but as a general overview, I think that that sounds like the right amount of detail for to demonstrate that you, you've done everything that you should and also that you're a conscientious dentist and, um, you know, that you do keep good records and that you do care about what you're doing. That was it as well, because that's what we, we sort of briefly chatted about this earlier uh, before we started shooting, didn't we? And a big thing is just being able to display that you're conscientious because a lot of these decisions, when they come to the court, it's the decision of a judge, ultimately, and maybe it's not it's not always black and white. There'll be a little bit of a gray area there as to which way the, the decision could go. And that would make it swing things in your favor. Certainly if I've grasped it correctly. Yes, that's right. And, and I think that is the thing in law that it is always gray. It's not black and white. That's why these cases go to trial because one party saying one thing, one party saying another, and the judge has to make a decision. Um, the judge usually sees dentists, you know, as fellow professional. Um, so, and, having good detailed notes you know does show that you're conscientious that you care about what you do and that's always going to come across 
well and paint a good picture of you. And that's you know a good starting point. Awesome. How much should we be updating medical history? Because people tell me different things all the time. Should it be every appointment? Should it be at the checkup before we do treatment, which is prescribed from that appointment? How often? Um, I would suggest that the medical history is updated at every appointment, if possible. That's because you know, if the patient has a medical emergency, for example, and the medical history isn't updated, then something could go seriously wrong. Uh, for example, if they're unconscious, you can't then ask them what's what might be wrong you're then going to be struggling um so ideally you want to know if there's anything anything that has changed before you do any treatment or really um you know get them in, into the surgery at all if possible so ideally you know they, hopefully they sign something in reception to check the medical history come in and then also you check again just say has there been any change in medical history anything i should know about um, and obviously also you need it really just because when you're considering the whole patient when you're deciding upon treatment to know everything that's there so you know again you're not going to be faced with some nasty surprise fair enough if the patient I, started taking warfarin or something and you take a tooth out and well, well this is it blood. i mean it's possible isn't it it's unlikely yeah. but it's possible and then you wouldn't really have yeah. leg, you wouldn't really have a leg to stand on would you but i've heard others say yeah. that oh it's not really necessary you know just do it when you've got an exam and then you've got subsequent treatment from it just do it at the exam and then they're good for however long but it never really quite added up with me you know because it, it's very possible and Louisa, I wanted to ask yeah. as well, how does that medical history update look? Is it as simple as saying to the patient, any changes to your medical history at the start and then just clicking reviewed on the computer? Or should we have them, I know this might be a bit OTT, but really should we be having them review it every time themselves and maybe fill in the new form or just click tick nothing's changed? I don't know. How does that look? How does that look, that update for the medical history? Um, ideally the medical history should be given to them to read through Um, that's assuming that they're that they can read and that they're comfortable with all of that um, and that they they sign it Um, whether that's a paper form and you have a a date and their signature for each appointment uh, and they can either do that at reception or in the surgery and then um, or if it's online, you might have a tablet that they can look at um, and, and they can then make any changes that they need to. And then when they come into the surgery, you should really check it with them, say, you know, any changes, anything you need to know about. You might think if they've got a particular condition, you might say, how's everything going with this, for example? You know, how's everything going with the diabetes or your orphan treatment? Um, just to kind of, to, in case of something they haven't thought of um, and then you just sign it yourself as well I think ideally so that it shows that they've looked at it signed it you've talked to them about it you've signed it and then hopefully you should have everything covered brilliant brilliant local anesthetic and the batch number can we can we put this to bed do we need, still need to put the batch number in for local anesthetic because that's takes you know it's an extra 30 seconds and that can that can shave a lot of time you know if you're running late something like that I know. Um, it's like everything in, in record keeping. It, it all takes time. And it's difficult when you're pushed. But yeah, it, I think ideally, if you can, it's it's a good thing to do. Again, it shows attention to detail. Um, if there's a problem with a particular batch, you, know, you don't want to be the dentist who hasn't recorded what was given to whom, um, etc. And it, it just also maybe makes you just double check the, the date, that it's still in date and so on. Wonderful. But, but when it comes to dental negligence claims, I would say that it's, it's unlikely that that's going to play a big part um, other than showing conscientiousness because they've talked about sort of breach and causation. And, he, and really, 
it might be something that um, a lawyer might think we haven't recorded a batch number, but really has that caused any loss? In most situations, it won't have done. Uh, but again, just you know, attention to detail. You ever had a case of that nature in your experience? Um, I've had, I've seen cases, number? I've seen cases where um, dentists haven't recorded it. And I think it's just something that you sort of mentally think, okay, they haven't done that. Is their attention to detail as good everywhere else? Or, you know, right. um, it just, again, a general reflection, but no case sort of brought on that particular point. And that point's never actually, in any of the cases I've been involved with, been a really relevant point. Just curious. Wonderful. But, Louisa, these are some, this is some amazing information. And maybe, I've definitely come out the other side of this with a new understanding of how I should be looking at my notes and maybe I was more coming from the point I graduated in 2016 and as the years have went on the attention to detail in the notes has increased they're 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 longer etc etc and I really just didn't have an idea of how much the info there should be in there and what I should be doing and I think the main thing if we could just take one thing away from this podcast it's to just try and display that you're conscientious display as much information, write as much information as possible. And then after that, you know, you kind of just have to, there's almost a little bit of a fingers crossed situation after that to a degree, only because it's so difficult to completely prescribe, completely informed consent to every single person. I think that's maybe the take home message. Is that correct? Um, Yeah, I would say so. So as you said, you know, do the best you can um it will show that you're a conscientious dentist make as many notes as you can anything you think that might cause any problems or where you really want to get the point across in your notes that something's been done obviously make a point of doing that but at the same time you can only do you know what you can do really um so so do the best you can and try not not to worry too much about it and duly because if you're following keeping up to date with the gdc guidelines um keeping up to date with all of the regulations and advice, doing CPD, so you know um, what procedures you should and shouldn't be doing, um, and um, doing the best way you can, then then really that's that's all that you can do. Fair enough. Louisa, let's round off on a high. What are your powerful, punchy, short, impactful top tips for staying out of trouble for dentists? <laughs> um, I think, so first of all, be nice to your patients. <laughs> True, so true. It makes a huge difference. It really does. Yeah, because if, if they've got a problem and you've got some good rapport with them, if they have concerns, they're more likely then to come to you and talk about it. Um, and then if they do come to you with a problem, um, listen and you know don't take it personally. Really listen and, and see what they want and try and help them and try and resolve it there and then if you can because you don't want it to escalate um, to litigation, which is an ongoing lengthy process and going to be um, a little stressful um so say keep up to date with all the guidance regulations and um make your notes as detailed as you can uh, uh consent to, um as best you can making sure you've outlined treatment options um and uh that you've communicated that to the patient the patient understands and um the other point which we've already covered and it, it is unusual but when people panic it does happen just not changing your notes um, or trying to make it look like you've changed them that day. And by all means, add something, but just date it with the future date. And, you know, if you've thought about something, but date it and say, I've considered this, I just want to add this point. 
Some really useful stuff there, Louisa. Thank you so much. And you are, of course, a lawyer who helps us dentists. Would you just like to explain a little bit more about how you do that for anybody who's listening who may be interested in getting in touch? Yeah, um, well, I love to help dentists. That's kind of what I feel most passionate about, having walked in your shoes myself. I understand it's a really stressful um, profession. And most people enter dentistry not wanting, not really thinking about the legal side of it, but wanting to help people. Um, And legal problems do arise, be that dental negligence, commercial and contractual disputes and so on. Um, So, yeah, so I help dentists, um, clinical negligence, dental negligence claims. I've been instructed by the Dental Defence Union um, to represent dentists and defend them um, in claims. Also, I do um, commercial work, so representing and advising dentists who have contractual disputes, for example, regarding associate contracts pay. Um, Also representing and advising dentists who might have a contractual dispute involving a member of the team, like a a nurse or hygienist. Um, And disputes which arise following the buying and selling of a practice um, and uh, partnership disputes and so on. I um, lecture dentists as part of their CPD on relevant legal matters and I'm also qualified as a mediator. So um, if the dispute arises then instead of going to court I can come in and act as a neutral third party and help the parties to reach a resolution that works for them without them having to pay extortionate legal fees. And the beauty of mediation is that the parties can agree to whatever they want um, as an outcome. It might be something as straightforward as a an apology, uh, something like that, and, and that can just help solve matters there before they, they progress any further. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that, Louisa. Louisa, we're going to wrap up now. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been an absolute really... pleasure. I've learned a lot. I've, I really have Good. learned a lot, and I hope that that was very useful for everybody who's listening. As well as that, we should mention that Louisa is on the Facebook group, of course, Louisa Sherlock, you'll be able to search her name in the members category should you want to get in touch with her. And for anybody who's not lis- who's listening, but they're not in the Facebook group, you can find us on Facebook, Dentists Who Invest, Community Group for Dentists Who Enjoy Trading, Finance, Money, all these things with a dental spin. And it would be an absolute pleasure to have you on there should you think that that would be of interest. As I say, we're going to wrap up now, Louisa. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me today. It's been really enjoyable to to chat with you. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. Louisa, we'll speak very soon, I'm sure, in a bit. Bye-bye. Thank you, bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit follow or subscribe so you can stay up to date with information on new podcasts which are released weekly. Please also feel free to leave a positive review so others can learn about this podcast and benefit from it. I would also encourage any fans of the podcast to sign up to the free Facebook community from which the podcast originated. Please search Dentists Who Invest on Facebook and hit join to become part of a community of thousands of other dentists interested in improving their finances, well-being and investing knowledge. Looking forward to seeing you on there.